bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. Welcome back. It is Erica on the mic, and I am joined by the one and only Christian, Kristen Rayworth, who, everybody, she just lost her cat. So we are going to uh, send our blessings to her cat's whatever. I don't know. I don't know what what spiritual journeys cats go on. And we were just talking about ancient Egypt, and we should have probably like woven that in. Well, but... yeah, we would have woven that in. Well, I mean, they, yeah. you know, the, there's a poem called the Rainbow Bridge, which is about like pets and when they pass away. And so that's how I like to think of it. Like, you know, I like okay. my my one of my um one of my good friends. Her dog died about six months ago, like it, very suddenly out of nowhere. He was very young. He got hit by a car. Mm. And oh, that's he, rough. It, yeah and she sent me this very sweet note and she was like I'm sure that Zeus is taking care of her and that's Aww. like that's how I think of it right like it's just your pets go to a place where they get to be the youngest best versions of themselves and playing and doing all that that's kind of how I like to like to imagine it because you know that's and it's like you know we show this is kind of a broader conversation but we show our pets sometimes a lot more compassion and kindness and empathy than we showed it human beings and <laughs> i've thought <laughs> but i'll i'll keep those um because we have a very meaty show today and we're going to talk all things pierre poiliev and his um would you call it a historic win Kristen? i uh i would yeah it's bigger than even harper so yeah okay his historic win uh, for the conservative leadership and um, yeah, all of those things and some things about what's gone on between him and Trudeau. And also let's, if we have time, we're going to talk about, um, you know, the, the, the issue with him and journalists and uh, how that's going to just become worse. Anyway, you don't come here for to to bring you up do you no you come here to rage so <laughs> without further ado Kristen is our conservative commentator uh from Edmonton Alberta my hometown so welcome Kristen thank you so let's let's just get into it uh oh wait before I get into it housekeeping um Aaron will be back at some point, <laughs> Aaron, Aaron, Aaron is like what I call what we used to call West Indians. She has like 40 jobs, which is like actually me. Anyway, all this to say, it's not like she's not coming back because she is. Uh, secondly, we are starting to do some programming uh, scheduling now. Um, one of the programming pieces we're thinking of doing this year that we haven't done in about four or five four years is a dating piece so we would love to know some of your um dating advice maybe dating stories um this is open to both heterosexual and queer and queer identifying people 
So that's something we didn't do last time and we're planning to do this time. So we would love to hear your dating stories and um, and some of the things you want to talk about. I mean, it could be anything from like interracial dating, <laughs> which will be on the docket. OK, let me just tell you, we will be talking about that and the politics of that. But also, um, you know, we, we just want to hear from different communities. So you can email us at the pod. And I always forget this pod email. You think I'd have it up now. Bad and B pod at gmail.com. And send us a line and tell us what you want to hear about, what you want us to do, um, work on, and all those great things. So, yeah, let's get some user feedback. How about that? And the last thing is, what is the last thing? I can't remember what the last thing is. Oh, well. I'm. Oh, here's the last thing. Every Sunday... As Kristen well knows, I live tweet House of Dragons at 9 p.m. Eastern. And then I actually watch the show at 11 p.m. Eastern. So and in between, I listen to a podcast on House of Dragons. So I'm really, really into the show. So if you're really into the show, and want to talk about it from an intersectional feminist perspective. For example, last week I tweeted why there's so many men whining in this cringy episode in this episode. They were cringy. Oh, is my reign gonna be okay? Am I a good king? Dude, the realm is falling apart around you, and all you could think of is you anyway. So, like those kinds of things. And I'm sorry. Did Sir Kristen think the D was that good that 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 Rhaenyra would run off and like just leave her entire power nest for him to what be broke girl boy bye anyway so you get enlightened tweets like that anyway this is a long intro so let's get into it Kristen so PP yep how about that. Oh, we also, wait a minute. Here's another important piece of news. Um, is that the queen <coughs> has left us, but the crown has not. The crown will be returning on November 9th, everybody, for season five. And it's going to go through, we think it's going to go through Diana's death. So, now we can actually get into it. Um, so Pierre Poiliev is the new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And he actually secured the victory on the first ballot after a record-setting and some would say divisive leadership campaign. After a seven-month campaign, the longtime MP and former cabinet minister from Ontario won the election decisively. Like, he stomped on everybody else, everybody. Securing. 22,993 of just under the 33,800 electoral points up for grab. And he his his support was secured across the country, coming in as members first choice in almost every riding. So receiving 68 percent of the vote, Poiliev trounced. Jean Charest, who was the next um, distant 
follower uh, with 16% of the vote. Leslie Lewis got around 10%. Roman Barber got around 5%. And Scott Aitchison, who, you know, we we kind of all came out at the end for, well, people who were not conservatives, apparently. Oh, but you did too, Kristen. Got 1% of the vote. So that's what we have. Um, I looked at his speech. I watched his speech on YouTube and then immediately got kicked on to Jordan Peterson, which should tell you all you need to know. But the speech was really good. His wife's speech um, is very good. She was she speaks better French than maybe Justin. (laughs) Anyway, um, she is from Venezuela and grew up in Montreal. And as time goes on, we will be talking about anti-Blackness in the Latino community or the Hispanic community writ large. Um, Because that's a thing, people. So there's the intro. Uh, He didn't run in the 2020 race, which I thought was very smart of him. He was first elected in 2004. He's an Ottawa area MP. And I think his riding is like, Granville-ish area, which is like, okay. It's kind of like Airdrie, Kristen. It's, it's like a suburban Ontario riding. Like it is yeah. the about Polyab that people don't always pay attention to is that he is, you know, sort of the key demographic in some ways of what the Conservative Party was trying to do under O'Toole and Sheer which is to expand their uh, voter base in the, in the greater Toronto area and the suburban on, on Ottawa area. And he is, he's managed since 2004 to decisively keep that riding, which they have lost a lot of those centrist uh, ridings uh, to the Liberals in the last couple election cycles. And Polyev has managed to stay. And so that, that I think is part of his appeal to the base uh, is that he he can do both. And, you know, he won 330 of the 338 ridings. Like he mm-hmm. kicked ass and mm-hmm. it didn't, it wasn't just in rural areas. It wasn't just in Alberta or the West. It was across the board. And that is much different than what we saw with the last two leaderships. I mean, the one with Shear and, and Bernie, I think went to 10 rounds. Like I can't even remember, but it was like, went through a lot of different rounds before you had a, had a victor. So this is decisive and this is clear and he is coming into this regardless of the fact that you did then have Alan Reyes uh, resign from the party the next day and you've had a couple other people who've vocally spoken out against him. The party is very united behind Polio. Oh yeah. Because everyone who's not is sidelined, it seems. Yeah. Well, they've been very clear. Like, you know, if people thought Harper was a little bit brutal to the people who spoke out against him probably it would be worse Mm -hmm. and i think that you've seen that even with the backbenching of michelle rumple garner who is now sitting i think in the third row when she's been much used to the front row action with the party right right and um (laughs) that eye roll was epic It, it was it was pretty amazing i i was like that's amazing so but I, I think it also just speaks to I think it speaks to the fact that Michelle has always been um 
very progressive on certain issues and she was one of the main champions to remove the uh the party declaration against gay marriage like that was michelle and that was her baby to get that done at the convention and i think that was probably about now maybe eight years ago that that happened um so well after it was actually legal in canada but she you know she's really pushed a lot of those things and i think you know she wrote a piece on you know saying that anybody going off about the world economic forum was being an idiot yeah and so this this really doesn't align with her version of conservatism and i think a lot of other people who are kind of to go back to your podcast appearance last week in the mushy middle of the party, this, this brand of conservatism that Polyev is bringing does not appeal to, to some pe- people within that kind of uh, ideological perspective. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting. Uh, what do you think? I think the messaging on affordability and inflation that he was doing uh, was, um, he was he's been talking about it before it became a thing right yeah and in the in the greater sort of news cycle well and i think too like the ndp came out with an attack ad from polyev this week and i think that that shows that they feel threatened by him and they feel threatened by his ability to speak to certain segments of their base that they have not successfully been speaking to when it comes to affordability and it comes to all of those things you only only have to look at ontario and see what doug ford was able to do in terms of some uh union support that he received Mm -hmm. and see that the power of that populist message can appeal across the spectrum so polyev could potentially not just be taking voters from appealing to the right, but appealing to certain people on the left and talks about these issues that are not getting the play that they need to from the liberal government. They, you know, now maybe a little bit, the liberals are slowly starting to address it, but not in the way, not in any real. They haven't, they haven't moved quickly enough on this issue. Not at all. Like they had all summer and they come up with these mealy mouth. Oh, well, we're going to reduce the, um, well, there's EI contributions, I guess. And a GST rebate, yeah. And a GST rebate. And you're just like, um, okay. Well, and we've talked about this before too, in that, um, and that's offline, not necessarily in the pod, but when you're talking about tax breaks or these kind of things, that doesn't make a difference for your average person in the moment. Right. Like saying to someone like who can't afford groceries or who's struggling to pay rent, oh, hey, don't worry about it because in four months you'll get a GST rebate. Like that does not make a tangible difference in their day-to-day lives. And so I think that those are the people who Polyev is speaking to. And Jagmeet Singh has really surrendered a lot of that real estate to him by not being as vocal as he should be either. Well, what has he done? (laughs) I can't point to one. Okay, see? Yeah, that was exactly what I was waiting for. Even pharmacare, like pharmacare, dental care, dental care, like he's he's really um, moved back on on the dental care stuff, and he's giving the, the liberals a lot of space. That should be his like big victory to be able to point to that and say that this is happening, but he hasn't been able to because the liberals haven't moved on it, which right. should be talking to nobody because they love making promises they don't keep. Right, exactly. So, like that's that's the thing. The 
the NDP has ceded a lot of space over the years. Uh, I would say since Jack Layton, they've mm-hmm. ceded the environment. They've ceded uh, everything working class. Um. They've seen this is the problem when you talk about a wealth tax, and I will be beating this wealth tax thing to death. If your messaging is let's have a wealth tax, that shouldn't be the message. It should be let's um like they should focus on what it does for people. Like it's like you fo- when the, the point is is that in that messaging they're focusing on the wealthy and not the people that they're supposed to be helping. And they're not speaking to them with that. The message was not about the people they were trying to help. The The message was about criminalizing people who had more power. And don't get me wrong. I am here for for more taxes for people for whom wealth is concentrated because, but to me, that's more like, let's talk about capital gains then, right? Let's talk about those mechanisms rather than taxing an outcome. That was my thing, but that's getting a little bit into the weeds. The problem is though, is that the left has always been shitty at this. They've always been shitty at coming up with those buzzwords that resonate. The right has always been great at it. If you go to the United States and you look at someone like Frank Lutz, who's like a a very well-known Republican um, sort of strategist, and he's the one who came up with the term the death tax. So when you talk about a state tax and and using that word instead of late-term abortions, that's another thing that they made sure that the Republicans emphasized, even though that's not a thing that exists. Um, But those, those resonate with people. And the death tax resonates with people because it makes them think, oh, you're gonna... You're going to make it so I can't help my children. No, 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 no. That's not what the estate tax is. But because of the way that they've framed it, it it resonates with people. And the left has never been good at that. So when you're talking about capital gains, you know, I like to think that I'm fairly educated, but I often have my head don't know what the hell you're talking about when you say that exactly in terms of how it would impact my life or the life of people around me. And the left need to get better at that, whether that's Singh or that's Trudeau, because they don't frame these things well. And so your average middle-class person or those seeking to join it, um, don't look at this language and understand what you're trying to say to them. They're very bad at the elevator speech piece of that. And that's something Pierre, Pierre Polyev excels at is being able to explain something complex, even if it's not always true, in a very quick and succinct way that resonates. Well, that's very interesting. Because um, one of the things that now, A, I have a question. A, do you think, I think meme culture has helped um, the right do better at this. And uh, I agree. And the left has been taken up by what what David Mosscroft would call the professional managerial class. And the professional managerial class are consultants and this and that academia yada 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 those are not the people who are snappy you know with the messaging like just inflation is brilliant it is yeah and whether or not you think it and i've seen all these people push back on twitter like about it but it doesn't matter what like the twitter class and now i sound like jason kenny but like the twitter class say because you hear that and it sticks in your head 
even if you don't agree with it, it resonates. And you see these kind of like lengthy academic responses. And this happens in Alberta too, all the time. When we were going into our uh, referendum on equalization that we had here, and you would see a lot of academics post like lengthy threads about why this made no sense, all the reasons why it wasn't clear, but that doesn't, that's not able to compete with the messaging from the right, which is basically Ottawa is stealing from us. And like that kind of that breeding of resentment that the right has has been able to weaponize in such an incredibly uh, effective way because they, people in Alberta, even now, even though we're sitting on a record surplus because of oil and gas, so we're doing fine they're still able to breed that resentment and that anger towards Ottawa, despite the fact that it literally makes absolutely no sense because the other side doesn't do a very good job of explaining why we should be actually like not as mad as a lot of people are. Mm, Exactly. Exactly. And that's a good point. Um, What did you think of the speech? I thought the speech was great. I thought that both their speeches were great. Um, Anna Polyev is a different kind of political spouse because she is a, she was a staffer. She worked for Michael Cooper, I believe. Um, so she's been around the Hill for a long time. She's not someone who's just, you know, married to a politician. She's been engaged in politics, engaged in partisan politics for quite some time. Wait a minute, Michael for- Cooper, who was, uh, who was, <laughs> whose picture was taken outside, like in front of a Nazi flag. And I thought it was perfect. Okay. Oh uh, yeah. Well, I, yeah, Michael, well, Michael Cooper. Um, who is a very popular M- MP. Like he I'm sure very- he is. And I am not surprised. I've known Michael Cooper for a very, very long time. And he's always sounded like a 60-year-old man, even when he was 14. So he was, you know, bound for this world in some ways. But so she is different. She's not going to be doing the kind of like sweet little speeches and doing like pet projects the way he that did other not. Play- other political spouses do she's going to be in there just as much as he is because she's a political animal just like he is oh i know i saw a political animal i saw i was like maybe we should elect her (laughs) you know like like i was just i don't know i i i felt that the two of them have the bases covered um no pun intended like and here's the thing that i think that people don't really realized because there's such knee-jerk reaction to Polyev, like calling him a white supremacist, calling him all these things. And what they don't understand is your average voter is going to look at Pierre Polyev, whose wife is is Latina, who he has, you know, his his dad is gay. He has all of these different it's gonna be a lot he's pro-choice. It's going to be a lot harder to put him in a box than it was with Shear, for example. Like Andrew Shear, it was very easy because he was obviously very uncomfortable around issues like LGBTQ2S issues. And it was easy to do that. He was pro-life, so it was easy to paint him as dangerous. For your average Canadian voter, so not like your Twitterite partisan people, but your average Canadian voter is not going to go into the next election and it's not going to be as easy for that person to see Polyev as dangerous as it was with uh with sheer as an example agreed i would agree with that um so we did say uh and and she is i hate to do this and i hate to pit women against each other or but let's just do a comparison 
with like Sophie. Like that's a different woman altogether. Like it's she seemed to me like a kind of um uh partner. Like this is the first partner that I've seen who is just as good, maybe even better than him. And when you talk about feminism, because that's going to be an issue and mm-hmm. women's rights and so on, there's there's going to be a problem with trying to take them down. I'm just saying. Well, and I think, too, that people forget that in 2015, when we elected Trudeau, one of the appeals to him was he was young. He had young children. He had this beautiful young family because his kids, I think one of his I think his youngest was like maybe not even like two, I think, when he won in 2015. And that exact thing that made Trudeau appealing exists for Polyev. Like Polyev's youngest child just turned a year old, I believe, at caucus. Like he brought his son to caucus for uh, his birthday. And so they have beautiful children. They're a beautiful looking family. And anyone who says that that doesn't matter is not does not pay attention to the way optics work they don't pay attention to the way that obama same thing like when he was elected yep. 28, it was a young you know, family jfk yeah. same thing yeah well that's why there's still that mystique about jfk because that is really the only president that i think has existed in the last like 60 70 years who had very very small children because of course the u.s likes to elect senior citizens so it's difficult to have young children around when everybody in the office is like 75 years old Mm -hmm. and then we have questions if that's the case yeah (laughs) but so in so i think for us like that was one of the appeals of trudeau like we have had historically significantly younger leaders i mean going back to my favorite obviously like joe clark was 39 when he became prime minister his daughter i was only about two or three Mulroney had young, young children when he was in office. Like we have had um, historically quite younger prime ministers. And I think that that's some of the appeal, that youthfulness. And while Polyev, I think is my age-ish, I think he's somewhere like around our age. Mm -hmm. um, There's still that youthfulness about him. And I think that that cannot be discounted in terms of the appeal that that will have going forward. Right. Right. So um, tell us what happened in this uh, election. What 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 the fuck, man? What happened to Jean Charest? First of all, I think that, you know, right out of the gate, this was Polyev's to lose because he had worked in the last couple of years to really build up his support, build up caucus support. He has been a superstar in question period. Yeah. Um, SNC-Lavalin, the Wee scandal, all of that. He built up this this sort of aura of himself over the last couple of years as being a bulldog and very um, effective in his role. So people were excited for him to run uh, when he ran with the platform that he did, which was very much co-developed, I'm sure, between him and Jenny Byrne. Um, it was this idea of being an unapologetic conservative. We are not going to apologize to media. We are not going to um, kowtow to whatever... Uh, social media wants us to say or do we're going to be who we are unapologetically Mm -hmm. whether you like that or not it appeals to the base and he was able also to appeal to the base through a lot of frustration and anger around vaccine mandates and then Jean Chere comes in as an establishment candidate 
who historically have not done well. I mean, you go to Peter McKay, he was an establishment candidate. Even Max Bernier, we forget that Max Bernier has always been insane. And when he ran in the leadership against Scheer, he was the establishment candidate. He was considered to be a moderate conservative from Quebec who, you know, was was saying moderately conservative things. Like this was like, I don't know what's happened to him since, but he was normal then-ish. So moderates have typically not done well in these leaderships anyway. The only reason Aaron won was because Aaron like veered to the right hard in his leadership uh, election and he appealed to social conservatives despite the fact that he isn't one. But I think the other problem with Jean Charest, and I say this respectfully because I know a lot of the people who ran his campaign and I like them personally, but they ran a really shitty campaign. They ran a really bad campaign. He wasn't out there. He wasn't addressing things like they were not hitting on the marks that they needed to be. And their graphic design didn't even reach the level of Canva Pro. Well, and and the other thing is, is like you can't just market yourself as the non Pierre Polyev like that. And that was a lot of what they did. And, you know, they did have a platform and did come out with issues, but they just they just didn't weren't, weren't hitting the marks in the right way. And that is because a lot of the people connected to that campaign and Jean Charest himself don't understand the conservative base. Not at all. And that's why they lost, because they didn't understand who they were trying to to talk to because they haven't been engaged in that grassroots piece of the party for a very long time. But this is the other thing. Okay, so let's just be honest. Centrist candidates, neoliberals and stuff, aren't in vogue. They aren't doing well. If you look at if you look at Ottawa's mayoral race right now, there's an example. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what is happening, I will always say, this is my whole treatise on this whole thing, is that the whatever economic instability and inequality, economic inequality brings political division and political division brings extreme positions and extreme positions bring in all sorts of fuckery. So centrists who have been ruling the world that people find themselves barely, barely keeping their head above water in are not in vogue. I mean, I got to say, Macron was lucky. Mm-hmm. He, he, yeah, it- he was lucky because I I was sure that France was going to turn full right. And, and that's the thing. Look at Sweden, Italy right now. All this is all happening because in Europe, this 2008 still looms, right? Mm-hmm. And that economic crisis. And then you have a pandemic, which is not just about economics. It's a societal crisis, too. And so that has been broadly mismanaged by the same type of people Jean Charest represent. Well, and I think, you so know, I'm not it, surprised is my point. And why these fuckers can't read the tea leaves is beyond me. Carrie Diot was a two time MP who lost to Blake Desjardins. And I hear conservatives say, oh, he was a good MP. No, he fucking wasn't like that. That is the thing that people don't understand. If you're not in the community, you don't. If he is not responding to his constituents, if you aren't present, going back to Michael Cooper as another example, people don't understand why he keeps winning. You know why he keeps winning? 
because I know people who live in his riding who, if they contact his constit office, they will get support or help within an hour. He is very engaged in his constituency and very present and Carrie Diop wasn't. And that's where people need to understand. That's where the work is. It is in that grassroots piece. It is being present in your community. It is understanding um, what people want and what people need. And until you actually talk to people, which Pierre Polyev has been very, very good at, you are not going to know what message resonates with them. And just because you think you're great and you think that you have this like aura about you, like I believe that maybe Charest's people thought like, well, Jean Charest. No, he didn't know what the base wanted. He didn't speak to the base. And in a lot of ways, he actually insulted the base. And that did not work for him, clearly. Yeah, and that's the thing. I I just, you know, we um, we think that politi- the best, who came up with that nonsense of the best policies and ideas win? People used to, you know what? It's those same neoliberals. It's those same centrists that are losing elections telling you that shit. Well, and it's, you know, I think that somewhere along the line, people, and this is not, this is like across the board where people think that because they believe so much in the integrity of the policies that they like, or the positions that they like, or whatever, that they think that's enough. And it's not because the vast majority of Canadians do not sit on Twitter. They do not spend their time reading, you know, all the stuff that you and I do every day, all the time. Like, you know, normals as we were. The normals. Yeah normals um what matters to them is their ability to do basic things and we have forgotten the importance of those basic things someone being able to afford groceries gas in their car to be able to buy a home to have the things that we like our parents did not struggle the way that that our generation is and the way the generations below us are in terms of affordability like my parents, I think the first house was like $35,000. And I'm just like, what the fuck? How's that even? I can't even imagine that. And they were able to build up wealth and accumulate wealth because they didn't struggle with the same things that we are right now. And I, and it's like that's been forgotten at the altar of some of these bigger, broader like policies. And I mean, I don't mean to say this pejoratively, but it is like a social justice like, okay, well, these great ideas and forgetting the basic necessities of what people need to live their lives and that's where Pierre Polyev resonates as well I think above Trudeau I think yeah and I I just think that Trudeau doesn't speak to that anymore no and neither does the NDP neither does the NDP I mean we we could do a whole podcast on shitting on the NDP but they don't and Jack Layton did and there's a reason why he is so revered and it's not just because we lost him before his time so he kind of has this sort of jfk like thing because he was never able to disappoint us really um but he spoke to people that way he connected to people that way and since then i mean mulcair certainly didn't and i don't think singh has been able to, to to replicate that at all i mean there's probably other reasons why he struggled in quebec but there's and I don't think you have that. Whereas in Alberta, and I, I'm sorry to always bring it back to Alberta, but that's Notley, why you're here, Kristen. But Notley can. There is she resonates with people. She is when she talks, people feel like she's hearing them and they understand. And there, that's that's and that's where she is really good in that grassroots thing. That being able to make every single person that she talks to feel like 
you know, she's more interested in them than she has been in anyone ever. Like she's very good at that. And, that's, and we talked again, about that with Jason Kenny. Yeah. And, well, and I don't know what happened to that version of the guy that you and I both talked about because he certainly wasn't present the last couple of years. <laughs> no, no. COVID really fucked him up. It did. It really did. Like he didn't know. This is a thing when you have things so meticulously calculated, you can't do agility. No, and I mean, and and it's an not adaptation. A, or, and yeah. as we both know in Ontario, it's not a question of like pandemic management because Ford did more ridiculous shit than Kenny did. Like, didn't he? Like, what did he make it like illegal for you to go out unless you had your dog or something? Yeah. Like, but he didn't. But then he came back with a bigger majority than he had before. Francois Legault, same thing. He brought in insane restrictions, but also had you know massive deaths in long term care. He's going to sail to a massive majority in the Quebec election. So it's it's a more personality thing and ability to resonate than it is on the policy. Yes, yes, exactly. So what would the liberal, okay, what would the NDP have to do to, because Aaron O'Toole was trying this too, actually, was trying to move to um, more working class Uh you know, it's one of the things where I was like, this is actually smart, Aaron. It's too bad you can't deliver. Um, But Pierre Poiliev can definitely deliver. And I remember giving like an anti-racism speech at the, uh, oh, what's that big union, that national union? Anyway. No, not uniform, another one. And I can't remember. No, the, the big umbrella union that oversees all unions anyway um and i was like you guys have like a a problem with white supremacy and that was before the pandemic and like people were bringing it up and i feel like unions just ignored the issue well but on the other hand Mm -hmm. wait a minute on the other hand the NDP has not, I would say, except for the fairness in 15 or fairness at 15, was it? Was that like like minimum wage boost thing? Yeah, 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 yeah. 15 and fairness or something like that. Anyway, um, it's I like the NDP didn't really get on board till late. That was like a that was more grassroots. The people doing the real stuff, the real work are literally people getting together in grassroots organizations trying to trying to get you know um trying to get attention for certain issues for example and it hasn't been the political parties that have actually been taking this and running with it and i find that really interesting i think i can't remember where i was but i was talking about how unionization is spreading but mm-hmm. it's not spreading amongst your typical unions they're still losing people. It's like it's like a new generation getting together and say we need representation and then doing it themselves. Yeah. And I find that really interesting. What is it about established unions that um, have seemed to fail their workers and the political connections they usually have have failed them too, failed the workers too. And I think that's really interesting. Well, and I think it's it's 
it's a very different world, right? And I think a lot of people who are coming up now and youth who are coming up now, like, because you've seen like with whether it's the Starbucks unionization movement mm-hmm. or other organizations that typically had not historically had unions, it's because they, they, they've gone through the last two and a half years as essential workers and realized how completely fucked they were getting mm-hmm. by the structures around them. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, and this is where, again, Polyamp has been able to capitalize on this because, for example, during the, during the pandemic, during the vast majority of the shutdown component of that and everything else, I worked for the government of Alberta. So I never once was afraid for my salary I was mm-hmm. able to work from home. I was mm-hmm. able to, you know, well, actually we were mandated to work from home, but I was able to, to go through that period without the fear of losing my job, without mm-hmm. the fear of having to, to, to go into work and getting COVID. And the right has been able to capitalize on that kind of, um, I guess, inequality that exists between someone like me, who in the Alberta can even call us the laptop class, and someone who works at Save on Foods, for example, who has no choice but to go into work, someone who works at a long-term care facility, who oftentimes lives with, you know, uh, multi-generational families, mm-hmm. and all of the different people who were negatively impacted by the pandemic, who didn't have access to the security that someone like I did. Mm-hmm. So I think that Polyev has been able to appeal to them. Singh has almost like given them up in a way. And he's, you know, yeah, he did do a lot of work in the CERB and like there was stuff that the NDP pushed that I think the liberals did because of that. But you have this whole group of people who are disaffected NDPers who don't know where their vote's going to go. And that is, again, a place where Polyev has managed to do extremely well. And if you go back even to 2016, when Donald Trump won, there was a chunk of his voters who were Bernie Sanders supporters. These yeah. are not people who are hard right Republicans. They mm-hmm. were people who saw globalization and the impacts of that in their communities, destroying their, their, their quality of life, who felt mm-hmm. that they weren't being heard, who didn't see Hillary Clinton as someone who could speak to that for them. And so they, they thought Trump could, and they aren't. And so again, and this is like this group of people, the voting base has completely shifted in the last 10 years and pan, like the pandemic and a lot of globalization and a lot of other things have impacted that. But to assume that everybody who could vote for Pierre is doing so because they are a hard right voter is incorrect. I agree. I agree. Nothing's ever that black and white. No. Well, except for on Twitter where nuance doesn't exist. No. Uh, well, of course. Of course. Um, so since then, since his incredible win, um, yeah, he's been hunkering down in question period. I guess. Okay. So let's talk about David Aiken. okay so david aiken i guess went to um there uh pierre polyev called a press conference his first conference as leader his first press conference as leader and decided to take no questions and that david aiken who was not impressed by this um basically 
was like, why aren't you taking questions? Can I ask a question? And then Pierre Poiliev, then um, I really should find the audio for this. He called him a liberal hack. And and then the other thing that came out of this that I think is important to note is that Pierre Poiliev's press secretary tweeted that uh, basically that David Aiken had told uh, Pierre Poiliev to go fuck himself, which, which is not never true. happened. Right. No, David Aiken said, I'm not your fucking stenographer, which, no, you were not. And it's hilarious that anyone would point, because then Pierre Polyev sent out a, a fundraising email based off of this encounter with David Aiken, yeah. framing Aiken as a liberal hack. David Aiken worked for Sun News, for Christ's sakes. The guy is a lot of things, but he is certainly not some flaming liberal who's just like wearing an I love Trudeau shirt. So... Of all people to go after and to criticize, this is a very interesting choice. This would be like if Doug Ford was like, Brian Lilly is being mean to me because he's a secret commie. Like, it just, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine? That'd be dope. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so which brings us to Dale Smith. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Dale Smith is a, is, I mean, I'm, he's very friendly to the liberals in a lot of ways in which he covers them. Mm-hmm. Um, and a journalist and he put out a tweet criticizing Garnet Jenis. I always mispronounce Garnet's name. I'm sorry. Not that I think he's listening, so he probably won't care. Um, basically making a reference to his, his joke being bad and something about shooting horses, I believe is what he said. And so this was taken again by by Polyev, but also by Scheer, who has taken a very interesting role in the Polyev government. Andrew Scheer has gone from being one of the most boring people in politics to all of a sudden becoming an attack dog within the Polyev government. Like it's it's Andrew Scheer who basically you can almost guarantee every time will take to Twitter and attack people and go after people on behalf of Polyev. He has sort of taken on the Polyev role of attack dog, which has been interesting development for someone whose like biggest claim before was like I love milk so it's a it's a switch but so he went after them they demanded that um Dale's uh ability to be part of the press gallery got stripped the press gallery's response wait 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 did they strip him no but the press gallery that's what the the CPC demanded the press gallery like sent out a tweet being like oh we're very sorry like it's 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 an interesting approach that they've, they, I think now it's like, it, it feels like people are getting afraid of the way that Paul, like, oh, we don't want to piss off Paul yet because we still want to be able to cover him and we want to be able to do this without being able to look at the tweet and saying, was it stupid? Yeah, like, I don't think it was a good tweet. I'm not a big fan of the tone of the way that he approached it, but like, give me a fucking break. Like, you're going to tell me that this is from the group of people who told you and I and people who going through what you and I have gone through that we just need to suck it up. And it's just a tweet all mm-hmm. of a sudden now this is, this is problematic when it's, I mean, they should, I, I'm sure that, you know, they would, they would not handle a day receiving some of the messages I know you have that I have Rachel Saba, all of us. So this is, this is going to be your big issue. So it just, it feels disingenuous it feels like a extension of the war quote unquote that polyev is is waging on journalists and waging on the media and anytime that someone says something he doesn't like they're gonna push back and we are not used to this because O'Toole wasn't like this and Sheer wasn't like this as leader so this is a new 
phenomenon for the CBC because Harper did it, but he did it quietly. This is going to be much more in your face. This is my thing is journalism and journalists. And, you know, knowing Canadian media, knowing Canadian media, they're going to err on the side of respectability politics and they're going to give them all the leeway to say whatever. And we're only going to see pushback in the name of columns, which is why you need columnists like me. <laughs> but, you know, that's the only pushback we're going to see and they're going to present him like he's, you know, not doing anything destructive. And so if the parliamentary press gallery caves on this one, they're going to be bending over for a long time. Yeah, and I mean, I think, too, the other part of this is, like, you can... That we need to be able to differentiate between when something is stupid and maybe a tweet that you probably should have left in drafts and something that's actually dangerous. And when you conflate the two, you are minimizing the experience of journalists, of politicians who do get regularly threatened. So as an example, yesterday, our favorite right-wing lunatic, Jeremy McKenzie, on his show, mm-hmm. um, him and another person on his show threatened, uh, talked about raping Pierre Polyev's wife. What? That's a threat. Yeah, that is a threat. That is dangerous. That is a criminal threat. What Dale did is not. And those are two different things. And we need to be able to talk about those things. And unfortunately, I find that we we conflate so much of this. And, and Polyev has done this very much throughout the campaign because this is part of his base appeal is like, I'm not going to listen to the mainstream media because they don't tell the truth and they're this and they're that. And he's not going to change. That's not going to change. But the way that people choose to cover him can. And it can switch in the way that it is addressing it by showing the nuance of things and not just repeating Pierre Polyev is mad about this tweet. So here you go. Instead of providing the nuance of what Dale said, I've seen worse tweets coming out from the from conservatives around Trudeau than than what that what Dale said in that tweet. Like oh my I, gosh! If if they had to if they had to deal with the shit that Trudeau, I I will say this: I was I was in the Wexit Facebook group. A friend added me. It was very instructive because let me just say, the shit that people I like I was just in shock. Like hang him, um, you know, things like that. And I'm just like, not nary a peep from anybody in conservative land. Well, you know, the other day, like I couldn't sleep because of, well, as you mentioned earlier, because my cat passed away and I was sad. So I was like scrolling on Twitter, doom scrolling on Twitter as one does at two o'clock in the morning. And so I was going through this, like the, the Trudeau must go hashtag, right? So all of these people have been putting out tweets saying like, I'm a mother of three and I've served my country and Trudeau thinks I'm a misogynist. And it's right. The responses are, are bananas. And the way that people are reacting to this is, is nuts. And, but that gets kind of left to the side because Polyev and, and Polyev's people don't want to actually address some of the crazy. Like, there are some people who genuinely do feel offended by what the prime minister said. 
They don't think it reflects them. They're not crazy people. They just, this is how they feel. But there are people in there who are uttering threats, who are saying insane things, who are like, you know, this is like like the same kind of people who are also just like, Trudeau is actually Castro's son. And yeah. Like, the, like, so there is a difference. And that was the distinction that actually, and like, I am not a Trudeau apologist, but every time I point this out, people are like, oh, you must just love Trudeau. I'm like, you per- clearly haven't Googled me. Yeah, clearly. Uh, but, you know, in the speech, especially in the French version of what he did, he's very clear that he is not talking about people who are vaccine hesitant. He is not talking about people who have genuine concerns. He's talking about a small section, mm-hmm. the same section, showed up in Ottawa in the convoy, who have, you know, fuck trio bumper stickers, who legitimately believed at one point, what, what was it, that they could write the governor general and get her to like remove him. Those are the people he was referring to. The people in Coots in Alberta who brought weapons, who were charged with trying to, with uttering threats, like people like that was who he was referring to. But this whole conversation has been weaponized into, you know, the ability to criticize Trudeau for anything. I'm saying that he's like, he hates anyone who's not vaccinated or he wants everybody. It's just gone to a whole other level. But what's interesting is that the next election is not going to be fought on vaccine mandates. It's not mm-hmm. going to be fought on a ride can. It's not going to be about that. So Polyev is going to have to um, pivot in some ways, because if the election is not for another two years, no one's going to give a shit about the Arrive Can app in two years. So how is how are they going to switch when so much of that base appeal has been around freedoms and mandates? And the same thing happens in Alberta. Like we're like that's a huge section of what our leadership candidates are talking about in terms of who will be our next premier. They're talking about COVID restrictions when nobody really is actually still talking about that. So what is the play then? Affordability. No, no, no. I know people are going to talk. I know affordability is going to be on the docket. No. But what is the play for people who are just all COVID, all mandates when we don't really have mandates anymore? I think it'll be a slow. It, I would think for, for Polly's camp, it will be a slow move. He already did a video on, I don't know, Friday. This week has been like a blur, a blur for me, but I think it was Friday where he did a video basically taking credit for the fact that Trudeau got rid of the Arrive Can app, which is not actually due to him, but okay. Um, and then he'll do another one when Trudeau scraps the mask mandate on flights, which I'm assuming he will do in the next little while because no other, pretty much no other country has a mask mandate on flights now except for us. Um, so I think you know he'll do that. But then he will slowly dial it back and stop talking about it. And broadly, he will still appeal to the idea of freedom and like do what you want because that's very key to his messaging too. But I think that he'll start focusing on bread and butter issues for conservatives and slowly move to that. So it is affordability. It is tax, guns, things like that. Like he will definitely move into that. But it also really depends on what the liberals do. Like the other piece of this that has allowed Polyev to become as popular as he is and get the appeal that he has is the Trudeau liberals, since they won the last election, they've barely sat in the House of Commons at all. Yeah. More than almost anybody else on earth. They're barely ever there. I, I cannot point to one real tangible thing that they have done since they won the last election. So can you? 
No. What, what, what I, oh. And it's still virtual sitting, which is, which is another thing. Like, you know, if you have, you know, pre-existing conditions or concerns, fine. But for the vast majority of people, they should be sitting, they should be back in the house and they should all be there back in the house. Well, I don't know how they're fighting with public servants when they, when they don't seem to want to show up at work either. See, and this, this is again, messaging that resonates. Yes. And rules for rules for thee but not for me yeah yeah Every like I people notice that shit and do. that shit builds and that's yeah. what i'm trying to tell i'm like that and canada is a place where it doesn't just react that reaction builds right till all of a sudden you're just like what is what happened well, well and this paid attention exactly and this is where i think it's interesting when we talk when we go back to this the Bohemian Rhapsody moment um, of Trudeau singing that song two days before the Queen's funeral. Right. Was that in and of itself stupid? Like, and not really a bit, shouldn't have been a big deal? No, it shouldn't have been a big deal. Do you know why it was a big deal? Because it builds on so many other different incidences and things that have occurred with the, with the Prime Minister. Exactly. It's a build. It's not, it is not, um, it is not just seen in isolation. Yeah, it's like in isolation, it's not a big deal. But when you go Aga Khan trip to India trip, you know, he's always making an ass of himself in general. And I feel also like Trudeau was trying to recapture that 2017 magic. That 2016 yeah, and 17 magic where he could do all those things and everybody thought it was cool. And I feel like this is where you don't know how to read a room. Because well, like you... you said, it's been, it's been, it's, it's absolutely um, been uh, a, a good sort of, of marketing gimmick for him. As you, as we were talking about the young families with young families, what or young politicians you're thinking energy you're thinking they know the times of what they speak you think they're with it you think all of these things mm -hmm. like i had to remind people that when Trudeau first came out he was a he was a tech bro mm -hmm. well and like you know i still remember the when when pierre trudeau died and he gave that eulogy Oh, that, right. Yeah. That was the beginning, right? Like that was when it slowly started for him and the momentum for him started because it's, it's it was a beautiful speech and a beautiful eulogy. And it was, you know, everybody watched it and it was then shown like a million times and it was that building of him. And then he ran and he was the MP in Papineau and then he would give these like emotional speeches about whatever he was doing. And it slowly, <laughs> built like it, it's not like he came out of nowhere it was and people saw it building and I think sometimes he forgets there's a big difference between being an up-and-comer and a rising star in a party and being a seven-year prime minister of a country like you 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 can't erase that seven years you can't people get tired of you after a while like we have, you know Mulroney won one of the biggest majorities in Canadian history in 1984 and by 1994, the Conservative Party didn't even exist anymore. Right. Chrétien, Chrétien same thing. Chrétien went back 
back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back majorities. He was he is one of the most successful politicians in Canadian history. Mm -hmm. And two terms later, the Liberal Party was third party. Right. So I think that people forget that you do get exhausted by people. And that's what's happening with Trudeau, whether it's fair or it's not, or it's justified or it's not. People are getting exhausted. And I saw you fighting with someone about this on Twitter the other day about Christia Freeland and whether or not she'd be able to, to, to win for the Liberals. No, she wouldn't. She's not Francophone. Like, that's the issue. The Liberals would lose Quebec with someone like Christia Freeland. Yeah. So they almost need to keep Trudeau so that they can try to keep their Quebec seat so they can mm -hmm. fight for that. Because unfortunately for someone in Alberta, we realize that by the time you get the vote count from Ottawa, not from Ontario and Quebec, the election's pretty much over. Yeah. Like yeah. there's no, there's not, there's very rarely a time where it's like, oh, let's, let's see what happens in Alberta. Maybe it'll be a, a change. No. So that people, so that's what the Liberal Party is fighting with now. The exhaustion after seven years of the same leader, but also the fear of what could happen if he was gone. Well, they built that party around him. So what did they, they have no succession plan. Well, parties rarely do, right? Like, I mean, you, it's not all the time that you have like Paul Martin hiding in the corner, just waiting for his turn to like, back. <laughs> but Mr. Dithers, I voted for Paul. I joined the Liberal Party to vote for Paul Martin in leadership. I will say I like you Paul really. Martin. Yeah, I mean, I still like him. He's still alive. So if you're listening, Paul Martin, thumbs up to you. Yeah, no, I thought he was a great finance minister. I, I used to joke he was the best finance minister the Conservative Party never had. <laughs> and the Kelowna Accord, childcare, like he was trying to accomplish a lot of really big ticket items for the Liberals. His problem was just that the sponsorship scandal and everything else that happened, like he was kneecapped from the beginning. And then again, like much like I think what we're looking at now, we had had, I think at that point, the Liberals have been in power for over a decade. Because mm -hmm. when like Christian won in 93, Three, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah. So he went in 93 and uh, Harper won in 2006. Yeah. So that's a long ass time of a liberal government. And so people were tired. They didn't, it was a change election. And Harper, while the public clearly didn't trust him enough at that point to give him a majority government, they gave him clearly. a minority. And I think that that's very much what we're looking at by the time that this next election happens. Polyev is in that position, but the difference also will be that Harper won in combination with an incredibly strong NDP party at the time. And that doesn't exist now. So I don't know how that potentially could change the dynamic. There's not going to be an orange wave in 2023 or 2024, 2025. No. No, 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 no. They're lucky. They're lucky if they have an orange whimper. Okay. You the demonizing very rarely works. Right. When... But that's what I'm talking about with like especially media and Pierre Poiliev, because I see it already. I see the demonization. I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm saying this ain't the way. Look, this man is in a toxic relationship with a lot of Canadians. And they still believe he's the one. OK, so what happens when you tell somebody, you know, that man is shit. They just run closer to the man or the woman 
or the person, the person, right? Like it's, you're not going to convince people by demonizing him. They need to be more clever because he right now, I saw him in the House of Commons. This man looked like the cat that ate the canary. Yep. You know, I was like, this man, this arrogant man is, he knows he's the one to beat and he knows he's deflecting these shots like Wonder Woman's bracelets. Well, and it goes back to even, you know, like again, to bring it back to the Alberta context, when the NDs ran against Jason Kenney in 2019, they they put like a God knows how much money into ad campaign after ad campaign after ad campaign to to show him as a bad man, a you know, a, a mean man. Like they had like, I can't, they had this stupid website they put up. They did all of this stuff to try to demonize him. And, you know, it did not work. It did not work because at the time, Jason Kenney was speaking to the issues that Albertans cared about. And Jason Kenney is a skilled politician. Mm-hmm. And so just running off of he's evil, we aren't, vote for us. That's not an ad campaign. That's not a campaign period. And unfortunately, the NDP saw that given that they lost quite badly in 2019. So now in Alberta, you can see that the NDP are shifting. Granted, they don't have a leader to run against yet. Uh, but they are shifting to being much more focused on this is what we will do for you. And I, and that's what they did in 2015. And that's why they won. And I think that if the liberals want to beat Polyev, attacking him is not the way to do it. What is to do it is to start addressing the issues that Canadians are worried and concerned about and not dismissing them and seeming like, because this is the other thing. Christy Freeland does this a lot in the house, which makes me furious. People will bring up issues and she basically puts her hand on her hips and she's like, no, that's not, that's not really a thing when it is actually a her thing. hand on her hip thing is really grating on my nerves. Okay. <laughs> and it's grating on my nerves because it's so fucking condescending. Like, what are you, my I, mom? Are you my mom or was I that, raised already? But that also builds into, and this is the thing where again, the liberals don't seem to have any kind of self-awareness is there's this book by Peter Newman called When the Gods Changed, and it's about um, Harper winning the election. And in that, he talks a lot about this, this sense that a lot of Canadians have that the Liberals are, you know, in some ways also the natural governing party of Canada, but that they they get to a point where they're just too smug to deal with anymore. And you're like, yeah. no, no, okay, I want to... And that's, I think, the impression that Christy Freeland gives off when she does that even though that's not me, God knows I wouldn't want to be judged in the way I'm judging her body language. But her, Trudeau, a lot of the front bench in that government really gives off that impression of like, they really you know, do. You, your concerns, not only do I think you're, you're wrong about the thing you're worried about, but you're stupid to have that worry. Yes. How dare you? Yes. Oh my gosh. I feel like I'm talking about, oh my gosh. I feel like I'm having this conversation, the same conversation I had in 2016. And the thing is, like, it's like, and and I uh, apparently, unlike some people, am learning that. Okay, you haven't seen. I haven't gone all ape shit on Pierre Poilievre because I know that that is, that's low hanging fruit. That's what he expects you to do. Mm-hmm. This is what he expects you to do. He expects you to call him a racist. He expects you to call him this, that, and the other. So it's not going to help. I feel like we need more leaders who like got in a fight in school and either got their ass kicked or kicked somebody else's ass because taking a beating is a thing too. 
honestly like because these tactics are such like schoolyard type of thing and we seem to think that we've evolved past that and i'm like no honey no we haven't well and you know what honestly too like i would tell any liberal strategist not that they're like gonna be you know banging on my door for my uh political advice unfortunately for them but they should go back and listen to the last two years of the hurly burly with jenny Byrne and listen to everything that she's saying because she is laying out in those podcasts exactly what their elections strategy is going to be really because from yeah from the minute that o'toole won she was very clearly like not and i'm not saying anything that she was not saying herself she was not a fan and during the election, she spoke about all of the things that she would do differently if she was in that office, why she thought what, what O'Toole was doing was problematic, mm-hmm. what would be a better... So they need to go back and listen to every single one of those episodes, and then they will understand what they're up against, because they are not going to be able to bully or push the Polyev uh, government or, or opposition into apologizing into um going into that media cycle that sheer got into all the time he is going to be unapologetically who he is and he is not backing down he's not going to to do anything differently and the liberals haven't encountered that before and so they need to be able to address that and and start dealing with it on their own because they're probably going to end up putting the liberals on defensive they're fucking lucky that polyev wasn't leader of the cbc during blackface i will tell you that because I think that he would have probably like destroyed Trudeau on that. I'm sorry he wasn't. And I will say it again. I'm sorry he wasn't. Because at least we wouldn't have this collective amnesia. What kills me is that Trudeau could literally burn down a building and people would be like, uh, he's just, yep. he was just cold. It's and the I'm same, like, you it's, no. it's, it's exactly the same mindset as when Donald Trump got up at a press conference, I think it was a pro or a rally, and said, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and still get elected, basically. No one was saying anything. And, and he a was lot right. Of, he was correct. Yeah. Basically, I mean, like, he's still, like, people worship the ground he walks on, and there's not a lot of difference between the behaviors of people who love Donald Trump and behaviors of people who, like, worship trudeau and he can do no wrong like like yeah. there was yeah on twitter, it's two sides of the same coin you're someone on twitter right. once was like oh well he didn't go to this, you know national truth and reconciliation day but you can't criticize him for that because his brother died and that's pretty much exactly the same as residential school people who died and it's like what like where does where does your thinking come from that that's the justification you're going to use but they will defend him regardless of anything. And that, that is one of the things I feel like contributes to the fact that he sucks. Like, I'm sorry for anyone who's listening to this, who's like a big Trudeau stan, but he has done three good things in the entire seven years he's been prime minister. Three. Cannabis, maid, and uh, childcare. And I What's the second that, one? Uh, medical assistance and dying. Eh, even that's getting well the first frame of it like as someone whose stepmother received medical assistance in dying i feel very blessed that that was an option for our family gotcha 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 you know that like some of what they've been doing since have been a little bit more muddled um but he promised that and he delivered yeah those are three things that he promised that he delivered but that's it 
So what should journalists uh, or people covering Pierre Poiliev, uh, what should they, how should they be doing it? I don't know the answer to this question. Do you? I think part of it is, is really getting into the weeds in some ways on some of the ability for him to deliver on the things that he's saying. Mm -hmm. So for example, he's talked a lot about, he made that video, the breakfast video around um, making groceries cheaper. I would love to see a journalist challenge him and say, okay, all right, then why are you still supportive of supply management? If you're so concerned about cost savings for Canadians, supply management makes dairy more like less affordable for Canadians. So why do you support? Right. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a very important policy discussion. I would like to see them question him on how he would accomplish the things that he's talking about without it negatively impacting the lowest income Canadians and the most vulnerable Canadians. Right. I don't see Twitter conversations about whether or not EI and CPP are taxes or not taxes. I don't care about that. Your average Canadian doesn't care about that. How is he going to ensure that if you lose your job, you will be supported by EI? How is he going to ensure that when you, when you retire, you'll be supported by a pension? I want to, I want to see them push back on those kind of tangible policy things, because I think he will have a harder time deflecting those questions than he would if the question was, why are you a racist? Why are you bad? Like, he's always going to push back on, do you know what I mean? Like it needs to be something that has, has roots within the policies options he's putting out there. Right. Right. I would like to see them question about childcare. He is on the record as saying that he doesn't believe in universal childcare. Why? What are you going to do for children? What are you going to do for families? How are you going to address those concerns? Because if there's one place that he could lose on, I think it's that. I agree. Um, right now, he looks uh, pretty formidable. So you will be back for this Danielle Smith uh, UCP fuckery that we will all have to face. Until next time, everybody, make sure you sign up uh, to subscribe to Bad and Bitchy and make sure you sign up to subscribe to Not In My Color, too, where I'll be. I think I'm going to do more of the educational stuff on there. And um, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do with it, but you can still sign up for it. And I'll tweet out um, the respective uh, links and put it in show notes to here. We don't have a regular show notes for this episode. Um, I've decided I'm only doing it when Aaron's on the mic. So, <laughs> ah, so I get a break. So anyway, Kristen, Thank we you will for see you soon. Very soon. Because that next election is when? October 6th? October 6th. Have Happy fall, everybody. And have a good week. Bye. Bye. bad and boo. Oh, by the way, I have a graphic and it's called a tax a taxonomy of Trump tweets. So I'm just going to read this first because I think this is really good. Number one, the first step, preemptive framing. Be the first to frame an idea. Example, 
the hacking of the DNC was the DNC's fault and Democrats lost by a wide margin, when in fact it was one of the narrowest margins in history. So preemptive framing, which Pierre Poiliev does well. Two, diversion. Divert attention from real issues. Um... And towards, um, so what they do is they divert attention from real issues or divert attention from the, um, from some of the reasons or, or, or considerations of real issues. And then they steer it towards some type of culture war. For example, divert attention from real issues around conflicts of interest and Russian hacking and towards Meryl Streep's speech at the Golden Globes. This was a few years ago. Yeah. Number three is deflection. Attack the messenger, change direction. So attack the media in an attempt to erode public trust. Reframe the story as fake news and establish the Trump administration as the source of truth. By the way, this is a huge pillar of fascism. That- That's also it's actually also almost word for word <coughs> the poly of fundraising email after the David Aiken thing. Boom. Number four, the trial balloon. Test public reaction. Test public reaction, for example, to as you were saying, the um the fundraising email afterwards, right? Uh, we need money to do our own work because these journalists are threatening us, for example. And that's and that's basically the play-by-play of how this works. So there, there's something that we gave you that nowhere else can, and that's why you should subscribe to the Bad and Bitchy podcast, everybody. 